we recognize, we understand that this, this day, this, this day of worship, it's, it's not like other days. It's a special one. Different from next week. Next week is our day of celebration. Next week is a day of victory. Today, however, it's just a little bit different, doesn't it? It has a little bit different feel, doesn't it? Just a little bit different. It's on this day, on this, on this Palm Sunday, that we put the events of two days into one. The triumphal entry and all its grandiose pomp and circumstance type of feel. The day where we find everyone waving palm branches and, and shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we couple that with Good Friday, the very next day, where we find those, those same people shouting his praise one day and the next shouting, crucify him. The polar opposite, one day to the next. Two sides of a coin, if you catch my meaning. One day praising, the next day cursing. And if you think about it, it was none too different than what Jesus represented himself. Because Jesus was the polar opposite. The polar opposite of what everyone expected in a Messiah. They wanted a king they got one who wrapped a towel around his waist, got down on his hands and his knees, and washed feet. They wanted a ruler. They got a carpenter's son. They wanted someone to sit on a throne. They got one who sat at a table with sinners. They wanted one who would restore David's kingdom and throne. They got someone who came to establish God's kingdom on earth. The polar opposite. Some might say that Jesus flipped the script on them because he wasn't what they expected or wanted for that matter. Not at all. As we come to our text for today, we find Jesus having a, a personal moment with his disciples. In the previous chapter, we find that they're up in the upper room, having that, that final meal, that final supper together, that Passover meal. And it was a meal that, that Jesus gave new meaning to, just as we just gave honor to. But he gave new meaning to a meal that was long observed. He flipped the script on what that meal represented. Here Jesus is, is sharing some final thoughts with them, preparing them for what's about to take place. He's already taken that towel and gotten on his knees and washed the, uh, the feet of his disciples. He's already affirmed Judas' betrayal as part of God's plan. And now he's acknowledged Peter's ultimate denial. Here in chapter 14, Jesus informs them that he's about to leave them. Leave them for heaven. And this is how scripture reads. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. 
In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what did Jesus just do here? He flipped the script on them to a group who had heard their entire lives that the only way that they could be right with God was to keep the law of Moses and to keep it perfectly to the letter. What Jesus says to them in this moment is a complete flipping of the script, the polar opposite of what they had studied and learned and been taught their entire lives. There was one way and only one way, and it was adherence to the law of Moses. Now the rabbi was saying that there was one way and only one way, and that it was him. He is the way, the one and only one, period, end of story, sort of. In my household, we have an understanding that if you want to get somewhere, then daddy is the one to get you somewhere. I don't know what it is. I claim it to be my superpower. But we can be on vacation and we can know, you know, where we want to go and a couple of turns here and there and there it is in front of us. Now this was before we had what? We had GPS and smartphones. And I just loved just relishing in that ability. Didn't I, honey? It was my superpower. It was my ability. But now, praise God for GPS. And even moving to Mableton, Marietta, Cobb County, I praise God even more for GPS. Because it helps me get where I want to go as I'm learning where things are. Have you known anyone who was terrible with directions? Remember the old Yahoo maps, the map quest that we would print out with the turn-by-turns, and one person had to be reading it and stuff? Ever known anyone who would get lost in their own neighborhood? And it was a cul-de-sac too, right? Well, that's pretty much the nature of man. A couple of weeks ago when we looked at Jesus' statement of, I am the good shepherd. We looked at Isaiah 53, 6, which says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned our own way. Great description of us. We're trying to make it through this thing called life. We're trying everything we can to make it meaningful, purposeful, fun, but it's, it's hard to do sometimes. And we're having a devil of a time making it happen. We make decisions and we live by those decisions, whether how good or bad that they are. And, and we might be, get pretty good at, at, at making those decisions that appease us for a time, that bring joy for a moment, but they don't last long. 
And even then, some of the means that we choose, they have more detours and roadblocks attached to them than we care for. I believe it's for this express purpose that Jesus said he came. Luke 19.10, he said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. John 10.10, I came that you may have life and have it to its full. That's what makes Jesus the way. Because he knows the way to the Father. To those of us who are trying to figure it out on our own. To those of us that are trying to find out why on earth am I here? What is my purpose? Why am I the way that I am? Jesus knows. And Jesus has been saying all along as he flips the script. Away from the law, away from the world, and even away from ourselves. He says, I am the way. Not just a better option. Not just one of several options. Not one that we can rely on more than a couple of the others. He flips the script away from what people have been told before. He's not just a way or another way. He is the way. And the Pharisees utterly rejected what Jesus said about himself. In fact, as as we've made our way through the I am statements Jesus made about himself, connecting himself to God as God, the Pharisees completely lost it each time that he made these claims. They utterly rejected Jesus because of his claims and because he wasn't what they wanted in a Messiah. In fact, when you look at this cross, it represents a flip of the script too, doesn't it? For the Pharisee, the law of Moses was the only way to gain righteousness. Jesus flipped the script by making the cross the only way to righteousness. The law of Moses required there to be a payment, a sacrifice... Because there was no possible way a person could fulfill the law of Moses on his or her own. It was impossible. So for the Pharisee and the religious, you had to find that perfect lamb. You had to take it in and let it be sacrificed on the altar in order to to pay for your sins for a time. Jesus came on the scene and he said... I'll be the perfect lamb. I'll be the final sacrifice. He did what man could not do on his own. And this cross used for corporal punishment. Used to put criminals to death. Became an altar by which the son of God laid down his life. And shed his blood. That we might have our sins completely forgiven. That's the polar opposite from what this tool had been used for before. A means of cursing on one day became the means of salvation the next. The Pharisees and religious utterly despised what Jesus represented. And they were more than happy to rid the planet of him. 
Turn to John 18. I'm sorry, John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officers saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Look down in verse 14. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify him? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate. Do not write the King of the Jews but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. One day he was being worshipped and praised in the streets. The next day he was whipped, spat upon, cursed at, beaten, Nailed to a cross. Polar opposite. Isaiah told us that he would be rejected, didn't he? He told us that Jesus would bear the marks of a whip. That he would be beaten, despised, and rejected. A man of sorrows, Isaiah called him. No one should have been surprised. But they were. You know, this cross represents something. It represents the place where Jesus took on a heavy weight. 
we recognize the cross represents the place where Jesus died. But what of that weight? What of the weight of sin? Peter will write that he himself bore our sins in his body. Isaiah says that all of our griefs and all of our sorrows will, will, will lay on him. The very thing that, that you and I are to stand before the judgment seat of God guilty for, he took upon himself. And not just some sin, but every sin. All sin. As I said, it was a heavy weight. Because he bears the marks of one who was rejected. The Pharisees, the priests, utterly rejected him and what he represented. They did not want a savior, a Messiah like this one. And in fact, when I think about the weight that he carried... I think about all of those who lived their lives unwanted. Simple, ordinary fishermen. Tax collectors. You know, those that the Pharisees scoffed at because he went to their house and ate with. I think of the woman at the well and all of her impurity and wrongness. I think about Mary Magdalene falling at the feet of Jesus at the table one day and washing 
his feet with her tears. You see, Jesus didn't just die on the cross. He wasn't just crucified because he was unwanted. He was crucified because we were rejected and unwanted. And the broken. Consider the broken that day. As they huddled around the foot of the cross. Weeping. Mourning. We make it seem so beautiful sometimes. Because we don't dare with the raw emotion. There was brokenness that day. Raw emotion. And there was a sense of defeat. Consider the apostles that day. Where were they? The Bible tells us that John was there because Jesus told him that Mary was now his mother, and he was now her son. Where were the rest of them? The Bible tells us they were hiding. Because they worried about receiving the same fate as Jesus. Because of being seen with him. What about Peter? He had just denied him three times. Just as Jesus predicted. Three times in just a matter of minutes, moments, a couple of hours. And what do they hear from the cross? Father, Forgive them. For they know not what they do. And then they hear the words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then they hear. It is finished. And they watch his body collapse. A heavy weight. A heavy weight. This wasn't just a simple death. It was a sacrifice. It was a flipping of the script. Actually, it was more than just a flipping of a script. It was a fulfillment of the script. A fulfillment of the scriptures. That Jesus came and offered himself 
for our forgiveness and to pay atonement for our sin. By taking up the cross, he provided a way, a means by which you, me, and we could truly enter a saving relationship with God the Father. There was no other way, no other means for it to take place. But that's not all Jesus said in John 14, 6. Not only does he say, I am the way, he also says, I am the truth. Which, of course, isn't a popular doctrine or statement. In fact, it's one of the most divisive statements in all of history. Lee Strobel says that it's the, it's the most politically incorrect statement of all time. That's one way to put it. It draws me to, to think about uh, the movie, A Few Good Men. Right? They're in the court case. And that beautiful of a figure, Tom Cruise, standing there before Jack Nicholson, saying, I want the truth. And what does Jack say? You can't handle the truth. That's this statement. People have gone literally insane at the thought, at the premise That Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only truth. Yeah. What he claimed, he claimed as the final word. It's final. It is finished. This is it. And although there are people and influences in our world today that are trying to get us to think that Christianity isn't the only way? Well, let me tell you, they're right. Christianity isn't the way to God. Jesus Christ is. It isn't a religion. It isn't a creed. It is a person, and his name is Jesus Remember years ago when Jesse Jackson said that there were many different ways to God? And he equates Jesus along with Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius. I'm sorry, but you can't go to a tomb of Jesus Christ. There's only one that I know of that not only died, but rose again. And I'm willing to stake my life and everything I own and believe and trust in, in in a person who has done the unimaginable, unthinkable, than some figurehead in a tomb somewhere. Lee Strobel says that he didn't just make the claim he was the one and only son of God, but he validated it like nobody else in history. Amen. Paul tells Timothy, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and it is Jesus Christ. Peter preached in in Acts 4.12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. 
It is Jesus or it is nothing. It is Jesus or it is a lie. There is no in-between. There is no room for error. I am the way, I am the truth, and he says, and I am the life. Like I said earlier in John 10, 10, he said, I came that you might have life and have it to its full. In John 3, 16, he said, whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. And here in John 14, 6, he says, no one comes to God the Father except through me. Now, here is where the script truly gets flipped. Because all these things that we recognize that Jesus died for, all these things that actually put him on the cross, they may be what he died for. But they're not what put him on the cross. He turned death to life, defeat into victory. He took what was broken and made it whole. He took who was unwanted and showed them they were loved. He took those who were rejected and showed them they were accepted. And he turned sin and he flipped its script. And he made us forgiven. There is only one way to receive it. There is only one truth to proclaim. And there's only one way to life. And it's Jesus. Not religion. Not a list of goods, good works. Not rituals. Not good practices, good habits. It's Jesus only, only Jesus. Without him, there's judgment, there's death, and then there's hell. 
eternal hell. A forever hell. But here's the thing. That's not God's plan for us. That's not God's plan or intention for us. Yet he leaves it up to you to decide. Scripture tells us that there were two crucified with Jesus. One on his right and one on his left. One cursed and mocked Jesus with his dying breath. The other one cried out for mercy. One whose heart was hardened with hate. The other who ended up filled with grace. One who was forgiven, the other condemned. One who died saved, and the other died lost. One who left this earth and went before the judgment seat of God and was convicted and condemned for his life of sin and sent straight to hell. The other who received the atonement by the blood of Jesus Christ and went to the judgment seat and was welcomed into the gates of heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus told him. And what was the difference between the two? It's these words. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Luke 23, 42. The other refused to have anything or say anything of the sort. Max Lucado writes, The only thing more absurd than his request was that his request was granted. Think about that. God will save any person who comes to him in sincere repentance and faith. And claim the blood of Jesus Christ as the only thing that cleanses him of his sin. And what that thief on the cross tells us is that it, it can absolutely take place with your dying breath. But here's what Ben Goodwin writes. He says, but who is to say if a person takes that risk... That they will be given such an opportunity. Well, Pastor, I just got to get my life together. I have plenty of time to make that decision. Deathbed confessional? No problem. I can wait that long. But will you be given the opportunity? That's why the Bible states Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. On October 8th, 1871, Dwight L. Moody preached a great sermon. It was titled, What Shall I Do With Jesus? And as he concluded the message to his congregation, he said to them, I want you to consider this all week long. And next week, I want you to come back ready to say what you're going to do with Jesus. That night, the great fire in Chicago took place. Thousands of homes and businesses burned down. Hundreds of individuals lost their lives. And Moody found out that even those who had been at church that day. He calls it, 
This is what he reflects. He says, what a mistake. Since then, I never have dared given an audience a week to think about their salvation. And he went on to say that he would even give his right arm if given the opportunity to reverse time a little bit and correct what he had said to them. None of us is afforded another day, promised another day. The Bible says that today is the day to flip your script. To make a decision that is the polar opposite of the way that you have been living your life. Here's how I like to say it. For you to invite Jesus in and allow him to change your B.C. to A.D. We, we recognize how, he, how his birth changed time, cut time in two. He does the same thing when you invite him into you. Isn't now the time? Isn't today the day of salvation? Pray with me.